0: Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Vicki Tatko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 41 and 42. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 41, and join Vicki as she shares truths from God's Word.
1: Welcome to BSF, everyone. My name is Vicki, and we are going to be studying Genesis 41 and 42 tonight. Let's pray, and we will dive right in. Please pray with me. Lord... We thank you for your word, that you speak to us, that you pursue us, that you are wanting to establish a covenant relationship with us in Christ Jesus and redeem us for your good purposes. We pray, Father, that you would consecrate these minutes that we spend in Genesis 41 and 42. Would you soften our hearts? Um, would you help us to have ears that can hear your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word? And I pray, Father, that our lives would be malleable and, trans- and that you would be transforming us more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that um, our time spent before your word would um, would contribute to glory that is given to him. Father, would you be with me? In my words, would you help me to honor Jesus in everything I say? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wonder what is your knee-jerk response when hard things happen? When you drop the carton of milk and it explodes all over the uh, kitchen floor? When you drop your phone in the toilet? When you see the police lights in your rearview mirror, when you get a phone call from um, a person that you had hoped to never hear from again, if you have a day like Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, how do you respond? You might think, why is the universe against me? Or if you're a Christian, you might wonder, why is God doing this? How could a good God let another mass shooting happen? How could a good God let my husband's, um, sorry, my cousin's young husband die of COVID just as COVID vaccines are coming out? If there is a God and He is good and He is in control, then why does He let hard things happen? Many of us wrestle with that big question in various forms uh, at different points of our lives. God can seem at those times stern and distant. Uh, I imagine that this was a question that the Israelites in the desert, Genesis's first audience, asked a lot. Why are we wandering in the desert? If God is for us, if we are his chosen people, if we've repented from our sin, why is life so hard? And the Israelites, probably better than we do, actually, understood their own failures to trust God and to follow Him. They had broken covenant faithfulness with God almost immediately after they had made the covenant with Him. They worshiped the golden calf. They disrespected Moses, God's appointed leader. They complained and grumbled about God's provision for them. And they flat out said no, in Numbers 13 and 14, we will not go into that good and spacious land. God is obviously trying to kill us. Um, And so, when bad things happened, as they surely did to the Israelites in the desert, and small things and big things, the Israelites may have wondered, what was God's heart toward them? Does he love us? Is he out for vengeance? Will he forgive us for rejecting him? And I suggest to you that our passage today, Genesis 41 and 42, addresses these underlying questions and should help us too as we wrestle with the big questions of how are these, why are these hard things in our lives? Um, why are these hard things in our world? And we see outwardly hard things in these two chapters, but we also see glimpses of God's overarching loving kindness. And so I think that as we study these two chapters, we can learn that although God may seem stern toward his rebellious people, his heart is overflowing with loving kindness for their ultimate good. And when we hold on to this truth, when we recognize that our trials are not God's being vindictive, but His loving and necessary discipline. Our right response is to trust Him. So, that's where we're going tonight, um, or this afternoon. And uh, our outline, we're going to cover those two chapters, Genesis 41 and 42, in two parts. Simply chapter 41, God's generous provision to the world, And then chapter 42, God's loving discipline to Jacob's family, God's generous provision to the world in chapter 41 and 42, God's loving discipline to Jacob's family. And again, our big picture aim, where are we going? Although God may seem stern toward his rebellious people, his heart overflows with loving kindness for their ultimate good. Okay, so let's dive into chapter 41. Open your Bibles, get them out. If you don't have them out already or um, fire them up to uh, chapter 41, we're going to see God's generous provision to the world. And his generous provision is through a person, Joseph, the conduit of blessing. And so, we'll see that by Joseph. God is warning Pharaoh of a coming famine, and by that warning, God saves many lives. And so, we're going to pick up again where we left off in the palace, the Egyptian palace, the world power at that time, and we left off there at the end of 40. It had been Pharaoh's birthday party, and just as Joseph has per- had told the chief cupbearer, he would be uh, spared and returned to his position, and the chief baker would be hanged. And so, that's where, that's what happened. And we see in uh, chapter 40, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so, surely that was disappointing to Joseph. But even though Joseph is our main character, the narrator keeps us in the palace. And so that's what we're going to stay in verse 1 of 41. We see after two whole years Pharaoh dreamed. And Pharaoh has two dreams. Now the for the phrase the first after full uh, after two whole years or a full two years this is a little subtle hint that God has not forgotten Joseph. Just as Joseph means he will add or he will increase Joseph's motif throughout his whole story is two. He everything seems to appear in twos, and so um, two years reminds us, aha, there's there's God is going to remember Joseph, but this is subtly in the background. We don't see that in the front right away um, because God's being generous to the world, Um, and so we see in these first thirteen verses, Pharaoh's dreams bring Joseph out of prison and into his present, and and so in one night. Um, there were, uh, after these two full years, Pharaoh has two disturbing dreams, and they were similar in theme and in numbers, and both went against the normal way of things. In the first dream, we, the, he saw seven gaunt and carnivorous cows gobble up seven beautiful fat cows. And in the second dream, there were seven blighted heads of grain that devoured seven full good heads. And so, after he has those two dreams, um, we'll pick up in verse 8. So, in the morning, his spirit, being Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh." Now, in the ancient Near East, dreams were frequently understood as a mode of divine revelation. And so, Pharaoh must have had some sense of foreboding, and he knew that these were not ordinary nightmares, and he went to the people who could help him. Um, Notice that even though it's the chief cupbearer who speaks up in verse 9, the chief cupbearer was probably not among the wise and learned uh, people that Pharaoh had consulted. He likely overheard Pharaoh's plight, and he offered Pharaoh some unsolicited advice, which of course was probably risky, um, which tells us how much uh, the chief cupbearer maybe was sorry and also believed that Joseph could help. So, we'll read 9. Um, picking up verse nine, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, or the word is, uh, in Hebrew is the same with sins. Um, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. And so, we see like right away, Pharaoh uh, respects that. And of course, he had a perspective on those events too, because Pharaoh was the one who restored the chief cupbearer, and he was the one to hang the baker. And so, verse 14, we see that Pharaoh has Joseph summoned from the pit into his presence. And we see in verse 14, Fourteen or 15 and 16, interestingly, a negotiation between the highest person in that land, Pharaoh, and arguably one of the lowest people in that land, Joseph. And so, um, once uh, Joseph was in Pharaoh's presence, we see in verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it and Joseph answered Pharaoh, "It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer." And so imagine that you are you've been imprisoned like Joseph unjustly for 2 whole years and or over that time and you are finally brought out before the governor or the president president, what would your very first words be? It would probably depend on what you had focused on during those time during that two years. The narrator doesn't tell us, but Joseph's words show that he is ready at a moment's notice to be God's servant, and without bitterness, he's willing to help the enemy, basically his the the chief enemy captive. And as and in as much as God is leading, and so when he said um, when he's saying this, it's not in me. He's not saying I won't help you. He's saying God is going to do it. And Pharaoh understands Joseph's answer means yes, I will help you, but it's God who is going to um, who is going to interpret it for you through. Uh, me, Joseph. So in verses four, 17 to 24, we see that Pharaoh recounts his dream almost exactly as the narrator had done. And we see the end of the um, 24b, again, the the difficulty of the problem. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So, all the learn, learned men, again, of Egypt had been stymied to make sense of this dream. Probably they had tried, they had said something, and yet Pharaoh had, uh, had discernment to know that those dreams or uh, those interpretations weren't weren't accurate, um, if, again, they had tried. And so, we see in 25 to 32, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream in a patterned, emphatic speech. And so, Joseph is not stumped at all. So, notice the contrast. His God easily is triumphing over the Egyptian gods who would have been able to mediate divine revelation through the magicians of Egypt and so uh, picking up in verse uh, twenty five then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of the Pharaoh are one God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do and so in this uh, in this structured speech we can see there's he goes in and, and he repeats that main point two two times. He explains the individual symbolic units in verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. Um, he explains what the that the seven the seven is seven years and um the, the dream is one and the with the lean and ugly cows, etc. seven years. So there's seven years of famine and seven good years. And then so he reiterated in his point in twenty-eight and then 29, he does a a corporate symbolic interpretation. 29 to 31, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And he concludes with this explanation, the main point, and also why there were two dreams. Uh, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, verse 32, means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now that Joseph has interpreted the dream, essentially his job that he contracted with Pharaoh earlier is is over and yet Joseph notice goes beyond he he's adds this unsolicited counsel it seems risky to me but as Joseph is proven to be an authorized interpreter of the lord it helps us to hear Joseph's words in verses 33 to 36, not as just old, good old wise counsel that he had learned from his years in the prison and in Potiphar's house, but rather this is God's specific direction to Pharaoh. At least that is um, one way to, to interpret that based on the fact that it came so close after the interpretation, which came from God, and then now here's the direction. Um, so, the direction, he um, he says basically three points um, in verse 33, find a wise man who would be the prime minister. And then verse 34, during the years of abundance, collect a 20% food tax. And then in verses 35 to 36, create a reserve to sustain Egypt in this famine. And so, this is the point of peak tension now that Joseph has finished the two parts of his speech. Um, The question is, how will Pharaoh respond to this lowly slave who speaks boldly for a God that Pharaoh does not know? And so, amazingly, in verse 37, um, and this obviously is contrasting with the experiences that the Exodus community, Genesis' first audience, would have had with their Pharaoh, um, the Pharaoh that they knew, this Pharaoh heard he listened. He listened and he took it fully. He appointed Joseph to that place, indicated by his counsel. And so, that's 37 to 40, verses 37 to 45, we see that Pharaoh just accepts it all and goes 100% along with it. Um, Pharaoh essentially believes. Now, we don't know if he believed in God with a salvific sort of belief, but he certainly believed what Joseph said and he acted on it. This was a revelation that God had given to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh heard it and heard it in a way that the ear the words just didn't come in and go out the other ear, but he acted on it without any sign of doubt. And I thought what an ironic and sad contrast that this king of this pagan king and all of his counselors because they do agree with him um, in verse thirty uh, there's verse thirty seven so this pagan king says yes to everything that Joseph said was in that dream, and yet God's own covenant family, the family of Abraham Joseph um, Jacob and his brothers, they rejected the dream that God had sent to Joseph. Um, and so there is a there is a warning in there. Um, for those of us who are among the the church, God's people, the covenant people in Christ, we need to keep on listening. We need to keep on hearing God's word and warnings. And so, we, but we can say that, yay, that Pharaoh listened, that he listened is a miracle. It cannot be explained in any other way that Joseph would go from prison to the highest position in one day. We'll just read it, I guess. Um, verse 37, uh, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of, all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order your, themselves as you command." only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so, we see that um, this is Proverbs 21, one in action. God orchestrated this. Um, it doesn't say that in the text, but it's very clear when we look at the sweep of what happens and how chapter 50, God preserved uh, many lives and the lives of um especially God's covenant family of Jacob from this famine. And so, we can see, we can learn from Pharaoh, what is the right response to God's warnings? Listen to them. What is the right response to God's wise provision? Receive it and wholeheartedly apply it. And we see uh, Pharaoh do just that <laughs> as signs of um what Pharaoh had was bestowing on Joseph, he received a robe. Again, this is his second ro- robe of of honor that he's received, and more than that, he receives a ring, an honor, a chariot, uh, an Egyptian name, and he was even given a wife from the Egyptian aristocracy. And we see in verse um, forty six that Joseph received this and cooperated with it and it seems to be God's specific direction and Joseph who had been has been so evidently sanctified by his time in the prison he is willing to accept this change in position with the same level of attentiveness and faithfulness that he showed in Potiphar's house and also in the prison and we as he showed the right, right response we see that in verses 46 to 52 he serves Seven years in an abundance, just as God revealed there were seven years of plenty. And we can see the administrative training in Potiphar's house in prison paid off. And yet, there is a verse, 41-49, uh, uh, that hints to us that this was not just a natural working of talent. Um, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. So, that is an echo of the Abrahamic promises that God had given to Abraham that his offspring would be as great as the sand on the seashore. And so, it suggests to me that this is God's Um, specific blessing, the blessing increased precisely because the Lord was with Joseph, not just because Joseph was a talented person, which of course he was. But there was also not only the corporate uh, fruitfulness, Joseph also had personal fruitfulness from the Lord. He received um, two sons during that time, verses 50 to 52. Um, And Joseph's naming of them gives us a brief glimpse into his personal development. So, um, he called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Um, And then the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction." And we see that going on in verses 52 to 57, after this period of plenty, um, there was just as Joseph had predicted, um, a time of famine, and Joseph shows the right response to, to serve in that time. And we see that in this famine, there was an opportunity for Pharaoh to recant. In verse 55, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh maintained his commitment to Joseph and the plan that he had received basically from the Lord. And he sent all the people who needed food um, to Joseph. And that as an ancient ruler, that is part of his responsibility to make sure that his citizens were cared for. And the Joseph submitted to Pharaoh's decision in that. So, we see in 56 to 57, Joseph again remains faithful. As Pharaoh directed, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And we find a hint there in 57 that that opens us back up where we're going to go to Canaan. Moreover, all the lands, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Okay. So we're coming to the end of this division and thinking about our big, our big plan. Although God may seem stern toward a sinful people, his heart is compassionate for their ultimate good. And so what is the big takeaway that we can learn from these, from this chapter? Um, I think that we can learn a heart transformed by God listens to Him. A heart transformed by God listens to Him. Because God loves us, He warns us. Because God loves us, He provides a true refuge from disaster. And He transforms us to heed our warnings and to seek His refuge. When a tornado, tornado siren goes off, um, in our house, as it does oftentimes, or in our neighborhood in St. Louis, we have a lot of tornadoes that come through or s- severe weather. Uh, people in my, in my house, including myself, don't tend to hurry. We, you know, we'll check the news, we'll look outside, we'll watch the radar, we'll wait for the second siren. Sometimes we just want to watch the storm go by. So basically, when the siren goes off, we're not very good at listening a heart transformed by God listens to him, not waiting for the third or the fourth time that he says something, but listening right away and taking it to heart. And we see that with Pharaoh. Ironically, that example that Pharaoh shows his willingness to hear God, that's God's supernatural work. Whenever we have ears to hear God's voice um, in his word, the scripture, to listen to his Holy Spirit as he directs us um, in our moral behavior, that is God's gracious kindness. Pharaoh doesn't debate with Joseph. He doesn't get a second opinion. He says, yes, sign me up. I will fully cooperate with God's generous provision of seven years of blessing and of Joseph as wise administrator to care for me and my country, in seven years of famine, and we see Joseph also hears and obeys. He is a conduit of God's truth and blessing. God loves you, God loves me, God loves his world, and he is not his word is not going to steer us wrong. The heart being transformed learns to know this and believe this you and I can live accordingly, and we can live radically in radical obedience, giving him the glory as he corrects the main, that is a, a core problem that we've seen in Genesis of listening to the wrong voices uh, as far back as Genesis 3. So, I wonder what kind of listener are you? Do you wait for the siren to sound again? Do you watch the news, check the weather? Um or do you listen? The first time God sends a warning, He never has false alarms. His prophecy to Pharaoh was not a practice drill. It wasn't a Tuesday morning at eleven o'clock. It was urgent news to be heard and heeded. And his, um, it was a call to repent and trust the living God to be loyal to Him alone. Because prophecy is not, as it occurs in the Bible, is not just for our heads, our knowledge that we might. Know what's coming and make wise, you know, make the right decisions intellectually. Um, It is a call to repent and to trust the voice of the one who speaks it, the voice of the living God um, in His Word and Scripture, and to a call to be loyal to Him alone. Prophecy will always come true, just like it did in this passage, which affirms again that God can be trusted, and God is warning now through the New Testament, that a future time of judgment is coming to this world, to each and every person. God will hold every single person to account for what they have done and what they have said. And each of us falls short of the perfect standard God's justice and holiness requires. And so, God's warning, He is warning us now in our world, this judgment is coming and He has provided the better Joseph. The Lord Jesus Christ, His only and perfect Son, um, and Jesus is not merely gathering grain for a famine to save your physical life. Um, he offers you abundant eternal life with Him. But we must receive it. We must seek refuge in Him um, to escape the um, that terrible disaster. Have you done that? Um, if not, would you would you consider doing that today? Would you? Pray and ask God to show you that Jesus is the one and true refuge for your soul. Um, And if you have done it, will you thank Him? Who in your life has not? Will you ask God to use you like He used Joseph in this time of preparation where we're waiting for that final judgment, that terrible disaster to come? Will you ask God to use you to be a conduit of His blessing in Christ Jesus? Although God may seem stern toward his rebellious people, his heart overflows with loving kindness for their ultimate good. So, let's pick back up. Remember, we're, uh, the last verse of chapter 41 s- expanded it. We're not just in Egypt anymore. We're thinking about the whole world. Um, the whole known world was in this famine, and it's been 20 long years for Judah and his brothers to keep their crime against Joseph hidden. Um, that's a long time. To keep a guilty secret. And even if you and I forget about God, maybe they had tried to suppress that and forgotten about God and His um, requirements for them, Uh, He does not, God does not forget about us. And so, we're going to see in these next two chapters, we're only going to go through one today, um, 42, but actually in these next, sorry, up through chapter 45, we're going to see God not forgetting about Jacob's family. And he's going to bring the brothers together for reconciliation and redemption. So, in 42, we see God's loving discipline to Jacob's family. And that's, again, the start of it. And there's a worldwide, or sorry, that widespread famine. Joseph is going to test his brothers. And so, in this chapter, there are four carefully detailed, mirrored scenes. The narrator has arranged this material so beautifully. It's striking. We're going to begin in Canaan, we're going to end in Canaan. And there are two scenes in the middle that are in Egypt. And the narrator tells the story in a very sophisticated way. It's not the way that typically in modern times we tell stories, but it is a sophisticated uh, method that's um, basically called by... (laughs) Uh, literary people um, withheld narrative exposition. And so, what does that mean? It means that the narrator tells us very sparse details at first, but slowly as the narrative progresses, he backfills and he adds information to the framework that he's given us, which requires us as cooperative readers, we have to revise, we have to reassess what we had thought was happening before and so, but that does mean that um, the narrator is inviting us to ask questions and to wonder about things. Of course, there are many questions we can have about these chapters. How do we know we're asking the ones that the narrator wants us to focus on? I suggest to you that if he, as he reveals more information about things, it's probably those areas <laughs> that he wanted us to be particularly thinking about. Um, so. It's uh, yeah 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 okay so let's let's go ahead and dive on in um, and so for forty two verses one to five we see Jacob is going to send ten sons to Egypt to buy grain and so um, Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt and he said to his sons verse one why do you look at each other um, and he said behold I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Okay, so, hunger is this strong motivator, and um, the what did J- Jacob mean, do you think, by why are you looking at each other? Um, Egypt was the one place where food uh, was to be bought. That's an open question. I think the narrator will backfill in information for us, but a question we can think about at this point. Another question is, why did all 10 brothers need to go? Why not just say four? Um, the narrator doesn't tell us now, but God has been working behind the scenes, and we will get more answers to both of these. There's going to be travel interludes, two travel interludes in this um, in this uh, chapter, and verse five is the is the shortest and briefest one. Um, there's an expanded return trip that will uh, that will come to in a, just a few minutes. Um, and so we see they travel down to Egypt, and there's the first scene in Egypt in verses 6 to 17. And so, out of all the people and places that Jacob's 10 sons could find them in front of, behold, they find themselves in front of their brother. Verse 6 Now Joseph was governor over the land, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And so um, why would these common foreigners find themselves in that place? They were bowing to the number two most um, powerful man. Um, the narrator doesn't tell us right now, but again, our interest should be thinking of those questions. And um, we see the scene echoes what Joseph had said about his first dream. Remember in chapter 37, verses five to eight, there was a sheath of grain or wheat and that he w- he was in the f- his sheath and then all the brother's sheaths bound down to him. This happens unwittingly. It is the first partial fulfillment of that prophecy, I suggest to you. Um, We have a fuller fulfillment at the end of chapter 50. Um, Spoiler alert with that. Um, And so, we see that verse 7 to 9, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. "'Where do you come from?' he said." They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And so, we can wonder, and I think this is the bigger question that we're wrestling with in this narrator in the nar- narrative, what is Joseph playing at? Is he bent on revenge? That would be probably a natural response. We could understand that, right? It would take a really big person not to retaliate and at least kind of bring it up and rub, it, rub their faces in it a little bit. Um, what kind of suffering had he experienced due to them? A lot. Um, Is it possible that beneath the harshness lie godly motives to repay evil with kindness, to be concerned about the plight of those who had done wrong to them? How had God grown Joseph in his years of suffering? We don't find these answers out now, but these are the questions we should keep in mind and um then did God give Joseph insight when it said he remembered the dream? did God give him insight of how he should uh have a plan to proceed with uh with the situation just like God gave apparently the plan to proceed when he had interpreted the other dreams um the narrator doesn't doesn't speak to that um but he will fill in more information. So, the bigger question, can there be genuine loving kindness motivating what seems externally harsh? That's the big question that the narrative poses, I suggest to you. Um, And so, again, speaking the concerns of Genesis' original audience, who faced 40 years of wandering in the desert because they had failed to trust and obey God's plan to them. This speaks to our concerns when hard things happen. Can there be genuine loving kindness, motivating what seems externally harsh. So, the first scene gives us a few clues. Um, Joseph accuses and interrogates them. He finds out um, more about his dad and his full brother, Benjamin. There's certainly questions that he had. We learn more about that later. Um, And then Joseph's dialogue in verses 15 to 16 suggests, this is a testing. Um, By this you shall be tested. And um, God uses tests in the Bible, not just to reveal character, which they do, but also to refine and purify character. God is at work in and through this test, regardless of how Joseph meant to use it. Um, Joseph does give them a taste of their own medicine. They go to the pit, that's the very center of the passage, and then of the chapter, and then Um, After three days, Joseph spoke to them. And so, um, he has uh, revised his position, um, the test that he proposed, do this and you will live for I fear God. Verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will will be verified and you shall not die." <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> he's why has Joseph changed his terms? We don't know, um, and what motivates? How does he care about the survival of his family back in Canaan? Probably, um, the brothers have an internal dialogue in verses twenty-one to twenty-three that tells us again the narrator's backfilling tells us more about what happened. Joseph pleaded for his life. Um, Reuben tried to intercede with them, and so it it they. Rather than be, being callous of their sin, it seems like they are feeling guilty. God is at work softening their hearts. They're thinking that what is happening to them is divine retribution for what they did to Joseph. Um verses 21 to 23. And so, we see um, glimpses of Joseph's heart in 24 to 25. He responds in three ways. He weeps privately. And so, hearing his whatever his intentions before, hearing his brothers acknowledge their sin stirs his heart in some way. Hearts transformed by God rejoice to see others move toward the Lord. And we um, need to wrestle with Joseph's motives still, but there's a clue. We see the second thing Joseph does, he takes Simeon and binds him before their eyes. And then the third thing he does, he has their bags filled with grain. Um, But the money that was due for the grain, he secretly puts back in their bags as well. What is Joseph thinking? Um, He's showing a tender heart, but then proceeding with the plan that the narrator only lets us see right now, bare bones from the outside. Stay tuned and um, let the narrator inform us later as we study in the later chapters. We have a journey interlude going back in verses 28, uh, 26 to 28. Um, this would have been a long journey again on, we say, donkeys. They One brother discovers silver in his bag on the way. It's frightening to them. Um, and then when they, when they come back, I'm um, oh, sorry, I mean, they were afraid. Now, that does change things, too, because merc- they had been mercenary before. They were like, let's just sell our brother. We'll get some silver instead of killing him. Um, and they could have been like, sweet, we got grain and money. But they seems like they were so earnest, they wanted to be seen for upright, honest men. And so, they asked the question um, that is the big question the narrative asks, what is this that God has done to this? We know it's It's Joseph who's doing it, but they were right to see that it's God's agency. Wow, what is God doing? How is he orchestrating these events? Is he doing this to punish them? Is he bent on retaliation? Um, What does he mean to do by bringing them face to face with Joseph? What is God's heart posture toward Jacob's family? Um, He certainly sees their sin. What is he doing about it? We get to then the last scene in this chapter, the second scene in Canaan, um, the sons report to Jacob and um, they tell Jacob what happened. They publicly together face the horror of the fact that the silver was returned, that there, it seems like they're, they weren't honest. Um, and then Jacob responds in, um, in, a, in, a, sad, in a sad way. Um, um, he was definitely, he, he assigns the brothers blame for Joseph's loss. Did you see that? Um, you, it's a plural you um, in Hebrew. You have bereaved me and my children, verse 36. Uh, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. All this had come against me. Um, Benjamin, or Reuben makes this rash offer to Jacob. Thankfully, um, <laughs> Jacob refuses the offer and the plan overall. And he uh, concludes and says, uh, verse 38. My son, Benjamin, shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Um, If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Um, this is an odd note for us to end on, and, um, and yet the narrative goes on. We'll pick up next week. God lovingly is not going to allow Jacob to stay um, in self-pity or his sons to stay in their guilt and foolishness. We're going to leave that for next week. Okay, principle I think that we can learn. God always works toward the bigger redemption. God always works toward the bigger redemption. Jacob, wa- God was not merely working to feed Jacob's family. And in that way, He is not merely working the details of your life and mine so that we would have nice jobs and bank accounts and stylish clothes and beautiful bodies and comfortable lives here. Um, God is working toward better and fuller, our better goodness, our fuller, more abundant life. He, His scope is bigger. He wants to redeem us from all the secret sins that we keep locked away, He wants to redeem us from horrible habits and foolishness and fear, false investments, and wrong beliefs. Um, in His way, in His time, He lovingly, creatively works toward the bigger redemption, and He is sanctifying us in this process to grow us to look more and more like Jesus. And this us, of course, is those who have trusted in Christ, who belong to Him, um, he wants to increase our dependence on him, increase our love for him, our knowledge of who he is, so that at the end, when we are with the great multitude in Revelation 7 um, 10, um, with every tongue and tribe and nation there, and we will sing, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the land. We will know. We will know the depth. Of his salvation, we will know how much he has saved us from secret sins, unfulfilled longings, fear and despair, injustice. Bitterness, anger, hatred, divisiveness, gossip, rebellion, selfishness. He is working toward the bigger redemption. God is not just filling in potholes or playing a little spackle. He works thoroughly and creatively, and it will hurt abominably sometimes. But God's heart is loving. And I guess I just my heart is tender toward that right now. Going through hard things. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, I will get it together. Finish. One paragraph left to go. Why does a good God allow pain and suffering? There are not easy answers to that question especially when we are in the midst of it. But Genesis 41 and 42 uphold the loving posture of God toward his people and his desire to see the whole world blessed through Abraham's offspring. Jesus Christ, the true Joseph and son of Abraham. What hard things are you facing today? And can you dare to believe that God loves you and he is working his kind, redemptive, bigger purposes in those things. And how might he be calling you to hear and heed and cooperate and be a conduit of his blessing? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness, for your love for us, that you pursue us and you desire our our not just our happiness, but our holiness and the bigger redemption. We pray that you would continue to work that in us. Help us to see you and your love even when it's hard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, April 12th at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 43 and 44. Please note that St. Louis Young Adults BSF will be observing an Easter break. We will not be meeting on Monday, April 5th, 2021. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international interdenominational nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.